Welcome to Historically Thinking, a podcast about history and how to think about history. For more on this episode, go to historicallythinking.org, where you can find links and readings related to today's podcast, comment on the conversation, and sign up for our newsletter. And consider becoming a member of the Historically Thinking Common Room, a community of Patreon supporters. Hello. In 2016, Roberto Foa and Yasha Monk published a chilling essay based on extensive survey data in the Journal of Democracy. It discovered that there was a growing desire for non-democratic alternatives among both young Americans and Europeans. Indeed, the younger and richer you were, the more likely you were to believe that it would be good for the army to take over. That essay was one of the many indicators and auguries of that and preceding years that something seemed just a touch off with the state of democratic institutions and those who used to love them. But my guests, Brooke Manville and Josiah Ober, retain their confidence in the power of the ideas and the culture that democracy contains within it. In their new book, The Civic Bargain, they offer a guide for democratic renewal contained within a history of the rise, fall, rise, and evolution of democracies. By focusing on Athens, Rome, Britain, and the United States, they demonstrate some of the commonalities of democratic governance between very different cultures and ages, and they show how democracy remains the best way of establishing and maintaining the civic bargain. Brooke Manville is an independent consultant who writes about politics, democracy, technology, and business. In previous lives, he was a partner with McKinsey and an award-winning professor at Northwestern. His books include The Origins of Citizenship in Ancient Athens and A Company of Citizens, What the First World's First Democracy Teaches Leaders hey. About Creating Great Organizations, which he co-wrote with our second guest, Josh Ober is the Konstantin Mitsotakis Professor in the School of Humanities and Sciences at Stanford University and Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution. The author of many books, among them The Rise and Fall of Classical Greece, he is also co-author of the Reacting to the Past game The Threshold of Democracy, Athens in 403 BC, which in many ways is the seed that eventually sprouted into this podcast. Gentlemen, welcome to Historically Thinking. Al, thank you for having us. Indeed. Thanks very much. Let's begin with the title, which is provocative and clear at the same time. What's the civic bargain? Josh, why don't you start? Our core argument um, is that democracy is based on a bargain. In order to figure that out, um, we had to come up with a new definition of democracy. And I'll throw that over to Brooke to give us yeah, I think that I think it's really the right place to start. And the problem is there are so many books coming out about how to save democracy, and people argue about it all the time now, but very often they don't define it. And I think one of the features of our book is we tried to define it very simply, something that was universal across anything that looks or smells like democracy. We basically say it's citizens governing themselves. But then we simplify it even further. And we say, look, at the end of the day, it's people making decisions together without a boss. And we use boss, obviously, in a figurative sense. Sometimes it's literal, but like a king, like an oligarch, like an authoritarian tyrant. But basically, at the very most fundamental level, people want to be free. And so living and making decisions together without a boss is our starting point. But, and now back to the bargain, we put a big asterisk on that. We say, 
people living and making decisions without a boss. Yeah. But actually you do have a boss, each other. The whole notion of democracy is that if you don't have a boss, if you don't have a tyrant or a monarch telling you what to do or preventing you from the kind of freedom you might enjoy as a human being, you've got to learn with, to live with other people and people never agree. And so you have to negotiate. You have to find ways of making accommodation that still holds yourself together with that freedom. And thus, there's a bargain. Like it or not, democracy begins and is based upon a bargain. Okay, so no boss except one another is the first of seven conditions of democratic governance. Could we gallop through the other six? Because in a way, the bargain is also, also five, good faith compromise. But let's go on. Two is security and welfare. Yeah. Don't tyrants pr promise security and welfare? They do. They do. And that's one of, the, one of the hurdles that one has to overcome to make a democracy. And democracy has lots of hurdles. One is you've got to be able to agree amongst yourselves that you can keep things at least as safe and at least as workable in terms of some minimal level of welfare as you had under the tyrant. And if you can't do that, People are not going to want to play along. They're not want to be part of this community. So security and welfare is the base for any kind of governing organization. And, and our second principle is really just reminds people that there is an alternative. You can live a peaceful and secure life under a tyrant, and you've got to be able to match that and then go on and survive and do better. Okay. Third is citizenship defined. Yeah. Yeah, why did I take that one? The real problem that democracy faces early on is answering the question, who are we? We the people will decide. We are our own boss, but we is never completely inclusive of all of the people who are within any particular um, domain in which the rules apply. We have to then answer that question, and it's always provisional. It's never total. They, it's never that all of the people who are under control of the rules are also participating citizens. And that then becomes one question. Um, uh, it has, that question has to be answered at any given moment, but it can never be answered finally because others who are not yet citizens have a desire to be citizens. And the question then is, at what are those who desire to be citizens, who have the capacity to be citizens, admitted to the citizen body? That's an ongoing question that democracy never decides definitively and forever, has to be decided at every given point in democratic history. And I just want to quickly underscore the, another side of that. So much of the literature about saving democracy today, or people just talking about it, ends up depersonalizing this notion of the government. We have to, the, the government doesn't do this. The damn government is broken because of this. And we're trying to remind people with all of its historical roots that democracy actually is about the people, that there is no impersonality on it, and citizenship thus becomes critical. So we have all sorts of debates today about who's illegals, aliens, who should be a citizen, what are the duties of a citizen. But that's all under the umbrella of you folks, us folks own this. And we have to start taking that a lot more seriously. Hmm. I'm resisting listeners the urge to ask questions because I think it's best 
we can go into yep. these seven things in the use cases and yep. then certain things will become more prominent. Fourth, yep. citizen-led institutions. Yeah. That one's pretty easy, I think. Uh, we don't have to spend a lot of time. Basically, that there needs to be institutions to provide the machinery for decision-making and justice and all the things that we recognize. They are different in different cases, of course, but there's some commonality. But most important, they have to be led by citizens. If the citizens do not, in some authentic sense of the word, control the institutions, then you can't live up to no boss. And that's basically about that. I, I think, uh, I, okay, I can't resist. I was just, for some reason, I've been talk, thinking about the medieval Italian city-states, their innovation of the potestà, and where they would bring in, if you're Sienese, you bring in what God, you wouldn't bring in a Florentine, but you'd probably bring in someone from Bologna to run things because he wasn't part of the communal strife, so he could be relied upon. But that, of course, is a failure to achieve something important in democratic governance. That was a recognition that they weren't getting, in effect, was a recognition that they weren't moving towards that. Exactly right. You, you can't outsource to reasonable adults. You have to be reasonable yourself. Yeah. Fifth, good faith compromise. Easy to say, maybe the hardest thing. Yeah, Josh. this one, and this really is at the heart of what we are concerned with. Our core idea is that it's way too easy to think about any kind of politics in terms of zero-sum games. We win, they um, everything we get, they don't have, and vice versa. Elections, we win them, they lose them, or it's the other way around. The real core of the democratic civic bargain is the recognition that bargaining is got to be aimed at a positive sum outcome. That is, all sides involved in the negotiation need to recognize they will be better off within the bargain than outside the bargain. Now, the bargaining can be tough. It can be very hard-headed, but it can never be reduced to simply destroying the other side, simply gaining everything and taking everything from the others. And I think that's one of the key problems that we're running into in contemporary democracies is this reduction of what we're doing to this zero-sum calculus. Bargaining, by its very nature, if we take bargaining seriously, is never zero-sum. When you go to the store, for example, and you're going to buy your widget, what you're doing is striking a bargain so that you're getting something that is better. The person who runs the store wants the money. They're better off with their money. You want the widget. You're better off with the widget. It's not zero sum. It's actually a positive sum outcome. And we just need to think about how to apply. And indeed, successful democracies have always applied that logic of positive sum outcome to the kind of negotiations that we are engaged in to establish the rules and the policies by which we rule ourselves. Every, every one of these conditions is related to at least one or multiple of the other conditions. Absolutely right. And I was thinking as I went through all four cases, including the United States since 1859, there's a moment when good faith compromise breaks down. Mm -hmm. It's when security and welfare are threatened. Right. right. And actually, and just I just quickly jump in on that. Uh, it, it, the rubric for compromise is, is common good. In other words, it... I mean, sometimes compromise is not the right thing to do. 
if you are betraying the common good by making a, a bad compromise. But keeping an eye on the whole goodness of the community, as it were, as the sort of the ultimate card. Or to, uh, to coin a phrase, how shall we live a good life together? I, yes. just, came up, I just came up with that. Yeah. Or mm. back to your point, Al, mm. about how should we survive together? This yeah. is why when you get to security concerns, when people are unwilling to compromise and the wolf is literally at the door, no wonder the democracy is going to be taken over. That's, that, so that's a, a critical part of this notion of compromise, because unfortunately, in today's narratives, it is often seen as a signal of unmanly defeat or whatever mm -hmm. you want to call mm -hmm. it. Oh, yeah. And as it seemed to Charles I and to the opponents of the Gracchi yep. right. and to everybody in 1859, the 1859 Senate. Right. We could go on with a list. Yeah, um, no, perfect. Exactly right. Six is, I think, my favorite related to citizenship is civic friendship. Could yeah. you explain that concept? Yeah, civic friendship is a term that we borrowed out of Aristotle. And the idea is relatively simple, although it gets nuanced in practice. Basically, you can't, you have to operate such that you can't turn political opponents into demon, demons and enemies that you want to destroy. It follows from the zero-sum discussion that Josh was leading there. In order to keep the bargain alive and flexible in the future, you have to be willing to come back to people with some sense of positive goodwill for the common good. It is not to be read as we need to have consensus. It is not to be read as everybody must be your personal friend. It is much more, we work in a uh, professionally collaborative way to the extent that we can continue to do business with one another. And it's another phrase that's often used. And so it's a special kind of friendship, meaning friendship to work together, not necessarily friendship to have deep personal feelings for one another. And finally, seven, civic education. Josh? This one really, in some ways, undergirds all the others. And exactly as you say, Al, they are all deeply interrelated. But what we found when we looked at our historical cases is that in each case, the community had found ways to teach citizens, future citizens, current citizens, what is necessary to know and what is necessary to do in order to be an effective citizen and to sustain civic bargain. So civic education can be formal, can be things that are taught in schools, in K-12, in our modern world and universities. Equally importantly, however, it has to be taught through the practice of democracy itself. So civic education can be manifest in institutions. Institutions get things done, but they also teach us how we get things done. The background culture of civic friendship becomes the necessary condition for this capacity and ability and desire to continue educating ourselves, basically the arts of citizenship. So that's something that we think is really absolutely essential and that has been to some extent forgotten in contemporary America. There used to be a lot of concern with teaching civics or teaching citizenship. That's been largely lost. There's currently a lot of interest among academics, among teachers, in how to get that back, we think that's really a very important part of what we're across the board. Before we get to the uh, cases, 
and spend um, 45 minutes on Athens, probably. Are democracies always experiments? I think when we get into sort of our cases and we get into our discussions, I think we have a sort of a, a resounding yes. Uh, one of the main points about the civic bargain that we make is that it's essentially got to be an ongoing process, that the, the shared understanding about how we are going to operate together as citizens who govern themselves without a boss, how you do that is going to change over time. It's going to change because of one of the problems we talk about throughout the book, the problem of scale, when the organization gets bigger and more complex, it gets more difficult, Te new technology arises, external threats arise. So there's going to be an ongoing testing of, this, of the strength of the civic bargain that first gave birth to the democracy. So you got to renegotiate the deal, to put it in very simple terms. So in certain ways, each deal is its own little experiment. It's like a theory. You can think about democracy almost like a lab in which lots of little experiments are run. And when one experiment works out, it keeps going. When it starts to fail or get weak, the right thing to do is to change it, to enhance it, to change the formula in, in, the, in, the, in the flask uh, on, the, on the chemistry table. So yes, democracy, I think, is an experiment, it's, but frankly, it's almost like a series of ongoing experiments. And in the best possible case, there's iterative learning, just as there is in any laboratory. Why did the first experiment ultimately start to fail? How do we change it? How do we make it better? That's, that's, a, that's another theme of our book. You've got to keep working on the experiment, the basis of which is this bargain, in order to keep it alive. Mm -hmm. And the moment you stop, it's dead. Yes. That's, clear, that's clear from all these cases. There's always a pretentious know-it-all histor American historian who says we're in the second or third American Republic and the first lasted till the Civil War. But that's almost on line with the bourgeois gentleman, his delight at being able to speak prose. Yeah. Because yeah. when you look at the use cases, these there there's always, there's a second and a third and a maybe a fourth Athenian democracy. The right. Roman Republic changes, and we'll get to it until it doesn't, which is a major problem. And right. then England is a continu as we'll see, is a continual maturation, change, alteration experiment going forward, just as America has been. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. And I think, again, you put your finger on another big sort of aha for us, which is that this phrase I used before, democracy is never done. There's often a very long gestation. There's a long process of experimentation before the moment of revolution. So it's really a combination of evolution and revolution. And again, people tend to stress the revolution. But the evolution, which involves lots, we'll get into it. There are all sorts of pre-democratic bargains that kind of lay the groundwork for, for a civic bargain. And then there's ongoing tweaking to the democratic bargain, uh, which, as you say, has to keep, keep going and keep alive. Let's get to Athens, where both of you are extraordinarily comfortable. And maybe we'll eventually get to colonial America, where I that's my home patch, and there's only 2,000 years in between them, 2,300 more or less. Origins. In three minutes, where did democracy in Athens come from? Go. <laughs> democracy in Athens, I think, has to be to find its origins in the really key bargain that Solon negotiates in 594 BC. So I didn't think there Athens was a Solon. Yeah, <laughs> uh, there was indeed. He's real. Exactly how much of the laws attributed to him are real is a 
nice debate. We could spend much more than four. I just say to listeners, Josh Ober has written book after book about this. So this is, he is the acknowledged authority on this by most. So appreciate that. Yeah. Uh, At any rate, the background is that in the years before 594 BC, there was increasing inequality in Athenian society, a few dominating and basically forcing the many into servitude, into actual slavery, the many becoming increasingly unhappy about this with the potential for civil war increasingly likely. Solon was elected to an official position, the archonship for 594, both sides, the many and the few, recognized that civil war would be catastrophic. Nobody knew who was going to win it. And they agreed that Solon could be the arbitrator who would come up with an attempted solution. But he has no power. He's not the boss. He's not the tyrants. Um, He has to come up with a solution that both sides will accept. And he does. Um, uh, Now, it's not a fully democratic solution. Um, the few are still really in control of governments. Yeah, it's uh, broken the idea that Athenians can just do anything they like to other Athenians. It basically ends enslavement of Athenians by Athenians and therefore creates the first basic right that Athenians hold against each other. Brooke has written about this eloquently, that really is the origins of citizenship. Then there is a period in which it's unclear exactly how this is going to go. A boss doesn't seize power, a tyrant, which is very typical of the Greek world in the so-called archaic period, the pre-classical period. The tyrant rules reasonably benevolently for a generation. The tyrant's sons who take over rule less benevolently. And ultimately, this leads to an uprising in which the tyrant is expelled. And the new bargain has to be made to now create new conditions is what really establishes true democracy that is ruled by an extensive and genuinely citizenship in Athens. That's 508 BC. The leader is Cleisthenes, although once again, he's only a leader, he's not a boss. And his challenge then was to create a new system in which a very extensive citizenship, probably 30,000 adult males who were rich and poor, who lived in different regions, urban and inland and coastal regions, could all together create the necessary security and wealth that would allow Athens to continue to survive as a city-state. Brooke, could you explain briefly how Cleisthenes defined citizenship and the way this interlocks with a definition of civic friendship in Athens, and also then acts as a sort of, nothing is self-perpetuating, but a semi-perpetuating system of civic education as well. Yeah. Athens is really the, the, the test case of all those questions you asked, and, and, and it didn't all get invented in one afternoon by Cleisthenes. We tend to freight him with all sorts of stuff. But let me just, I'll answer the question, but I want to back up and, and just make a point that leads into it. One of the very big ideas of our book, if I can be humble about it, is, again, this notion of the bargain. And people say, oh, the Greeks embedded democracy. Inevitably, they're saying, oh, well, Nick, one man, one vote. That was a Greek idea. Or they invented this idea of everybody in the assembly. Or they had a, a sort of a combination of 
was sort of a steering committee, the Boulet and the assembly. Those are institutional comments, but we actually think that if you want to credit the Greeks for inventing democracy, they invented this very basic idea of the deal, which is, as all this mass nations going on between aristocrats, Cleisthenes apparently, or he's given the name as person who said, you know what? I can win this if you will follow me and I will quid pro quo start to give you some rights and say in how you're going to govern yourselves. It was a deal. And we don't know the details, but obviously that deal came together. And then with that deal coming together, there was also not just benefits, but there were duties. You have to fight in the hoplite phalanx. You have to grow in the triremes later. And other scholars have pointed to the fact that one of the formative parts of the Cleisthenic revolution, as it were, what was this notion of people fighting together in the hoplite phalanx, side by side, not necessarily best friends, but realizing that they had a common good of not getting killed, not having their country, their polis being defeated. And that built a sense of, if I may, civic friendship of some sort, some solidarity amongst people and franchise with, with, with duties as well as benefits of various kinds of freedom. And even at Marathon, if you can't afford hoplite armor, which is pricey, you can throw a rock and peep the siloid, right? Is that, and they, and they do. <laughs> exactly. But the idea of civic friendship clearly had its root in military behavior and ethos, but also in, in the assembly about people making decisions, again, for the common good. The famous story of Themistocles later, we have all this, we have all this silver we found. What should we do with it? Should we give everybody some? No, they said, with civic friendship in their voice, let's spend it on the common good. Let's build some triremes because we need that more than adding a few limousines to this guy's house or something. So this idea of the civic friendship evolved out of the necessity of working together, saving oneself, and then also seeing the benefits of being dignified equals, in some sense of the word, with each other in making decisions. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Could you explain very briefly the ways in which Athenian uh, citizenship was divided between tribes and all the rest of it? Because I, that sounds recondite and yeah. out of the way, but it's not. Yeah. When we look at Rome and we look at things we take for granted in the United States, even, I think that it actually it's a way of creating this friendship and creating also a sort of a taboo. Yeah, Culture yeah. is about guardrails. Right. The origin story of Athens begins with a divine rape and it solves the problem of how a virgin goddess can give birth. She but also it roots the Athenians in this soil. The first king is like snake man that crawls out of the soil. It's a profoundly interesting story about right. how we are of this place. Right. But that's problematic in a, a democracy that needs to scale. Exactly right. J Josh, you should talk about the Cleisthenic Treatise and all that. Yeah. Um, so big challenge that Cleisthenes and the Athenians, all of the Athenians face after this revolution that throws out the tyrant and basically refuses to have a boss is how are we going to govern ourselves together? Athens was a big place by Greek standards, tiny by modern nation-state standards, but at about a thousand square miles, a adult male free population of something like 30,000. How are you going to get that many people running themselves, especially when 
their interests are not identical. They live in the inland, they live in urban areas, they live in on the coast. And the great breakthrough, this is the, really the Clycenic reforms, were to create a new system in which there would be 10 completely artificial groupings of the citizens. We call them tribes, but they don't have any kind of ethnic... Uh, They're component. fictive tribes. <laughs> absolutely right. They're completely fictive. Uh, each one of the tribes would be made up um, of three parts, um, one part drawn from each of the regional um, areas of Athens, urban, um, inland, um, uh, and coastal. Uh, each of those um, parts um, was in turn based on existing villages. So a few villages from the inland would be one of the three parts of one of the 10 tribes. And the point was, is a lot of organization then of Athens, both military and ritual organization subsequently, was based on tribes. Since the tribes were drawn, each one tribe was drawn from these villages from disparate parts of Athens region, you find, found yourself fighting next to men that were very different from yourself and very different life experiences. You found yourself dancing in the rituals to Dionysus with men very different from yourselves. You found yourself in the Council of 500, which becomes the steering committee of the assembly, trying to debate with and come up with proposals that will allow for the survival of the state with men very different from yourself. So that really was the core of it. You created the possibility by practice of generating civic friendship across the existing lines of difference, of identity, of locality. And it just worked extremely well. That allowed Athens to basically be the Athenians. The Athenians writ large, that was a huge scale leap that creates a massively larger manpower base, much more diverse manpower base, and ultimately highly motivated manpower base that is the basis for Athens going on to greatness. Yeah. Reading this for the first time, I realized that in a way they invented a non-geographic federalism. That's exactly right. right. I, I actually, I wanted to jump in and, and, and emphasize your word fictive tribes because that it, it's the artifice that was the brilliance because mm -hmm. there did used to be tribes. They were called Fule. They were built, they were based on, on blood and kinship and there were lots of little units, prey trees and Guinea and that kind of thing. And the, the big idea from the Clythenic revolution was yeah, we're going to have tribes, but they're going to be completely different than the ones that we used to have here. And we're going to change how people are called in terms of their names. And they're going to fight together in a completely different way. And it's all under the rubric of this other concept that's Aristotelian, which is one of the secrets of democracy is that you need to have mixing. The word in Greek is mixing. You've got to mix people up. And a lot of the critiques of current democracy is people are not talking, they're not living together the way they used to when they came. The Congress people used to live together in Washington. Now they don't, that people are in their own enclaves. We have identity politics, which is another whole thing we could talk about, but it's all, that's all about saying we got to be back in our small silos. And the Greek experiment certainly says breaking down silos and mixing people is actually the key to civic friendship and actually also literally military success. Mm -hmm. One hard question. Athens is, is a society with slaves. 
I'm not sure of the percentage, and we might even think of it as a slave society. Do Does slavery define citizenship? Does the category of the metic, of the resident alien, does that define citizenship? Or is that something, or is or categories of citizenship defined without slavery or without medics? I think so. Indeed, Athens is, I think, rightly characterized as a slave society in that a lot of the labor was done by slaves. The category of citizen, I don't think, is defined in the first instance against slave population. Although one of the key moments, this goes back to Solon, was the decision no Athenian can enslave another Athenian. Mm -hmm. That creates a kind of positive sense of what it is to be an Athenian so that the full, fully democratic conception of the participatory citizen, the one who attends the assembly, whose vote is equal to the others, then inherits this idea that you have basic rights, you're, you are a free person. But I don't think that it's right to say that democracy depends on, or that democratic citizenship depended on slavery. In, rather, I think it is that, like virtually every ancient society, slavery was simply in the background as part of the assumption of how you got the relevant level of economic prosperity for at least those who are the slaves. So is there, that's just a, a background reality of ancient societies, as recent work has shown. Slaves are characteristic of ancient societies. Uh, Athens had a lot of slaves. We don't know how many slaves. We don't know because the Athenians never knew. There was never a census of slaves. So it's one of those unknown, unknowable unknowns. But they had a lot. And one of the key things, I think, is they had as many slaves as they had because of how successful the society was. They were generating, or they, they had the capacity to generate more wealth by bringing in more labor. We look at the pre-Solon period, the wealthy exporting Athenians. They were selling Athenians abroad. There was an excess of labor for the economy. Once the democracy gets into, really gets going, you just have a demand for more and more labor. It's a dynamic society that doesn't have the machines that might be able to do the labor. And so, therefore, to increase your output, you need to increase labor inputs, and that's, and that's slavery. It's, you are right, Al, that, that nonetheless, that as the democracy matured, use that term, the boundaries between who's a citizen and who is not became harder and it was sharpened in some to some degree in contrast and so the medics that you mentioned for example there used to be all sorts of foreigners or aliens working in athens and over time they got much more precise because there were certain kinds of medics who had certain privileges and others did not there were also new laws about you had to have at least one athenian mother and sorry other athenian father and then an athenian mother whereas before it was just a father so the, the whole question in all the cases, and democracy writ large, is back to what Josh said, who is us? And there are going to be categories and mechanisms and inflection point where new boundaries are made and negotiated, to use that word again. And again, in our society today, we have so much agita about the border is not secure. We have all these people 
working here, who are not citizens. Yes, but we need them. No, but they're taking jobs. But it all comes down to who is us who's running this democracy and who gets a say in it and who does not. And it's that simple, but it's very complicated in practice to work that through. Before we go on, Josh, could you, your wire is over your microphone. Oh, and it's occasionally scraping. Yeah, that's better. Okay. 40, 50. Okay, 40, 40 minutes in. Good. All right. We will, shall proceed. Go ahead. So just uh, on the who is us uh, question, I just uh, think that's very important to make a distinction between democracy and perfect justice. So I think in many cases, there is a worry today that democracy is unjust because people are excluded. And I think one of the things that our work shows is democracy is never perfectly just. It never achieves a perfection of fair fairness. There are always exclusions. And the aspiration to be more fair, to be more just, is characteristic of democracy. But it never gets there. And recognizing imperfection, understanding that every bargain that we live by is an imperfect bargain, that some people are doing better and some people are doing worse, is part of, I think, the kind of educational realia that we see as essential. If we're going to maintain democracy, we've got to recognize that we're always going to be dealing for, with, with imperfection. We've uh, spent as long as I feared we would on Athens, because why wouldn't I want to talk about Athens to the two of you or, or, or ask and ask, I could ask you many more questions, but we should move on to Rome. The most controversial thing in a book about the civic bargain and democracy is that you included the Roman Republic. <laughs> I expect that you'll be getting lots of stiffly worded emails from yes. historians <laughs> of the Roman Republic, challenges to Gladi at dawn and things like that, perhaps. I don't know. How is the Roman Republic a democracy? This is one of the advantages to our very basic definition of democracy as no boss. The Roman Republic begins with the expulsion of a king, a refusal to have a king be the boss. From there on in, the whole essence of Roman republicanism is bosslessness. Now, the question then is who's actually going to be running the show? And uh, various of the leading aristocratic families thought, it'll be us. Uh, uh, but in a series of political bargains that ultimately lead to what we call a civic bargain, the truly established, uh, well, by, our, 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 by our lights, democracy, between these aristocrats, the so-called patricians, and the non-aristocrats, the plebeians, yielded, ultimately, a system by which the Roman people were genuine participants in, indeed had control over, the direction of their community. And so, therefore, although it was not a democracy on exactly the Athenian lines, it did fulfill the no-boss-but-ourselves condition and certainly did incorporate a whole set of bargains that ultimately, we believe, can be understood as the kind of civic bargain that is characteristic of democracy in our basic sense. Mm -hmm. The Romans had no less than the Athenians a dizzyingly complex way of dividing dividing up their system of government. We've got the, the assembly of centuries, but then we've got the, 
the tribal assembly. We've got all these different organizations. We've got the four city tribes, the 17 rural tribes, roughly equal in size, at least. Could you, what's the importance of this? It's because it seems to me as creating these, as creating civic friendship. Yeah, the Roman, or actually Greek by ethnicity historian Polybius, was fascinated with the way in which Rome had created a mixed form of government, a form of government in which no group within the community, no social group, and equally no position of power within the government was dominant. And so that's, that is the very complicated Roman system was ultimately, I think, designed to push back against somebody or some subset of the population becoming the boss. So therefore, you have tribunes who push back against the power of the the elites. You have the Senate, which pushes back against the power of the assembled uh, citizens. You have the consuls who give a direction, a kind of executive direction, so you know who's actually going to be leading the armies when you go off to war. But they really, the essence of the system really is this resistance to any particular group or any particular individual ultimately being the boss. And that's why we see it as being democratic in our sense. And it's capable of scaling. And uh, it's we didn't very talk, capable of scaling. We didn't talk enough about this with Athens, but oftentimes, at least my story of Athenian democracy in my head is it ends, it trails off. Sometime after the Peloponnesian War, I don't know, I don't know, but it changes a lot. It develops, it scales until eventually the Macedonians come and do what they do. But Rome also scales. Yeah, so the, I, we really make a contrast here that after the original radical expansion of the citizenship, the Cleisthenes moment, the Athenians don't expand their citizenship. They bring in a few, on the margins, a few of the resident foreigners were granted citizenship, but it's rare. And this ultimately becomes a problem for the Athenians because they can't scale up. They simply don't have as many people committed to the enterprise as they need to confront ultimately the challenge that imperial Macedon under Philip and then Alexander the Great posed to them. The Romans go the other way. The Romans expand their citizenship from the very beginning. They offer citizenship to defeated enemies, to those who join them as allies, and Rome's citizenship becomes bigger and bigger. By the time we're in the uh, third century, it is massively larger than any city-state had ever been before in terms of its citizenship. By the time we're in the first century BC, it is almost unthinkably large by ancient standards, literally millions of Roman citizens. Until, and it adapts, evolves, and then until it doesn't. So could we describe, Brooke, do you want to, do you want to describe the moment at which you, everyone basically sees it as this moment where Rome, for some reason, stops adapting and evolving? There's this remarkable Right. There's remarkable development for hundreds of years, and then it stops. Again, I think the story is well known, and we don't have any radically different interpretation, but the, some of the language that we use maybe is new. The civic friendship starts to break down because the, sort of the values and the trust that the larger citizenship has 
erodes and people, generals are going off and winning battles overseas. This republic is really a small I, small E empire. And they're giving out land to soldiers. And that starts to become much more important than serving the state. It's essentially what's in it for me. And so you start to get a battle of powerful titans. It breaks down into civil war through the, after the Gracchi especially, and then into the, the first century. But it is a scaling problem. This, our view, and we're not unique in this, is that the citizenship essentially got so watered down and overshadowed by the chance for new wealth and the distribution of wealth beyond what tradition had allowed that the belief in the common good essentially eroded and shattered. And eventually a republic was no longer a republic. And, and what finally put it back in order was a boss called Octavian. That's our story. And I think that the question of scale, if you even just look at, at Athens and Rome, and we can certainly look at the U.S. and Britain as well, is central to the big modern question, which is how do you find the sweet spot to keep everybody engaged and working together, not necessarily consensus, but working together and, and trusting each other enough to serve in the military, make decisions in good faith, compromise when needed? How do you do that? realizing that there's going to be a constant push for more people to come in if you're successful. And then as more people come in, it gets harder and harder to keep some kind of unity and solidarity amongst the citizenship. That, and that is the, the modern multicultural problem. How does America, which once had a very strong citizenship, I would argue, uh, maintain that sense of coherence and solidarity uh, while also being more and more inclusive and more and more people who want to come here, which maybe is absolutely the right thing. And, uh, and, and we don't realize it, but multicultural dilemmas are nothing new. Multicultural, uh, Rome, yes, exactly right. La Latins, Italians look very different to Latins, at least in the in the third century BC. And God knows Ligurians are, are Celts and they're barbarous and Sicilians, God knows what they are. Exactly right. And Athens had its share of people who didn't look like Athenians, to use that phrase. This is the core issue for, for democracy, that if there is a bargain, how do you keep the bargain alive when it's getting more and more complex and more and more diverse in terms of numbers, in terms of ethnic background, in terms of opinions, and in terms of religions? The, the religious wars are a big part of the problem in the, in the British uh, democracy story as well. Yeah. I mean, we don't have time. We're already at 50 minutes, and we're not going to get into Britain and America. There's just no way. But one thing that struck me, was and I had to go back and study the South Carolina Constitution of 1808, as one does. And be, I came up because I realized that there, there is, in the story of Britain and America, you have two democracies who obviously are deeply influential to one another. Right. And I think in emulatory fashion, and someone should write a book about this, but I don't think it's going to be me. Yeah. But maybe, maybe it will have to be. Right. But there's a way in which they're always looking at each other because of the origin stories of both of them are intertwined, one and the other. But South Carolina in 1808 granted all white males citizenship and voting rights, which well, then I looked at and I realized that was so revolutionary. Right. And the person who proposed it was a friend of this podcast or maybe a friend, John C. Calhoun who also at that point was a Democratic Tribune and, of course, would then also later articulate, based on his endless reading in ancient languages, <laughs> that the only true republic has to be a slave republic. 
Right. right. For him, slavery was a sine qua non to exist because of citizenship. Yet the fact, despite, let's leave that aside. The fact is that 1808, all white males had citizenship in North Carolina for a while until they realized the error when they, free blacks, free black men had citizenship. And that is, you refresh my memory, the 1918 Suffrage Act in Britain, which isn't called that, but when 10 million women get the vote, Right. 12 billion men also get the vote in the same act. Yes. There are still men getting the vote. 12 million, more men than women get the vote exactly. in 1918. There yeah. are still men left to get the vote. It right. just is boggling. Right. South Carolina is more than 100 years ahead. You're absolutely but there's, right. There's still an emu- but there's still, I, I think there's an emulatory ambition going on there. There absolutely is. There's a back and forth. Remember that the American Revolution itself was pretty contested back in Parliament because there were a lot of members of Parliament who were quite sympathetic with the complaints of the Americans. So they also said, these are fellow Englishmen. They have certain rights. And the, the other side said they happen to be colonial subjects, so their rights are limited. And the debate was about that. But, but then once the war was over, because of the excesses that, are, that went on in France, the Brits and the Americans kind of got back together again because the, the French suddenly became not the right model for democracy of those Americans looking at that. And this slavery thing is also very interesting because it was the Brits who actually cut off slavery and the slave trade before the Americans did. And part of that was to say, look, we, are, we, we may have lost this revolution, but we are the more virtuous society. And it wasn't long after that then the Americans, of course, tried to do that had their own civil war. So I think this notion of back and forth all around the connection, the question of who is us, once again, who, mm-hmm. what are our values? What is, to what degree do we subscribe to a particular religion? To what degree is race part of what we are? And meanwhile, the Brits are off conquering all sorts of people of color and building an empire. So the debates are very comparable, even though the forms of democracy are developing at much faster rates in America, partly because there was so much open property and giving people enough property to vote was a cheap bargain, but also because- That was already the case by 1760. It was really hard not to be able to vote in New York State or New York Colony of New York. In in the era that the Americans were basically breaking away and on their way to near full enfranchisement, the number of voting men in, in Britain looked like under 30%. So huge differences, just like you said. Yeah. Uh, I want to, I want to talk, finish by talking about civic education, which is something that this is why the podcast exists. Right. I said at the beginning, this was in many ways, this seed was inspired by the reacting to the past game mm-hmm. that Josh uh, co-wrote, which is threshold of democracy and the, uh, the reacting to the past game on the constitution and also on the revolution in New York city are three of the best ways of teaching citizenship. I think in any classroom. You teach the American Constitution game, you're going to have students, in my experience, are going through the Federalist Papers and dog-eared copies of Madison's notes in the Constitution, like fundamentalists going through the Schofield Reference Bible, back and forth with post-its and marks and disputations on Federalist 51 and how can I use that in my next speech and stuff like that. It's fantastic. Right. But civic education is, you have a fantastic, in the epilogue, you describe the, the undulations of civic education drawn from even from just from Stanford University. I'm mm-hmm. sure we could replicate that in every university, probably in America and school system. Could you briefly describe, because this we've gone through this before. Yeah, yeah, for sure. That, uh, as we said before, civic education is 
always a big part of every successful civic bargain, every successful democracy. If you look at my current university, in 1920, the university created a mandatory year-long course that was called Problems of Citizenship. Now, why did they feel it was so important to do it then? The 19th Amendment was just passed. Suddenly, you doubled the size of the citizenship by enfranchising women. It was also a high-water mark in terms of the number of Americans who were not native-born. There had been very high immigration since the late 19th century. So this sense that we must educate those who are now citizens, we all have to do this, was very uh, vibrant. And this conception that part of what the university must do is educate those who will be citizens, who will be governing themselves, free society, continues really through much of the 20th century. Once again, if you just follow out Stanford's uh, history, it begins to break down in the later part of the 20th century because of battles over what ought to be taught. And at Stanford, it all falls apart with the chant of, hey, ho, ho, Western Civ has got to go, because that's not going to be what we're going to be teaching. And for the last part of the 20th century, the early 21st century, Stanford, in common with other universities across the country, public and private, pretty much just gave up on the idea yeah. that part of the university's role was, was teaching civics or citizenship. It is interesting, is it not, that happened at universities throughout the country because professors got tired of arguing about things. Yeah. Which they, you, you would think would be their good faith compromise and negotiation yeah. would be part of who we're supposed to be, but I think maybe as the professoriate got even more hyper-individual. I think that's right. The, the professoriate became more professionalized. It's easy, much easier to teach discipline, a particular discipline, whether that's engineering or history, than it is to bring that discipline into the question of what what citizens yeah. to know and, and to practice. Administrators didn't like big Conflict. protests going on. They wanted to quiet it down. Ah, we can and so it becomes uh, the hyper-professionalization that we see now in, in universities and the abandonment of civic education, which arguably some pretty bad effects. Um, and you don't have to be on the right or the left to, uh, 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 to recognize that things are not going as well as they ought. And part of the reason they're not going as well as they ought um, is that we've stopped bargaining with one another. And we've really lost the skills that would allow us to do that. So I think returning to returning universities, returning K-12 education to a commitment to teaching citizens what they need to know is absolutely an imperative. In some ways, we see the book as it's not meant as a textbook, but it's, what do you mean by civic education? We think it's this. <laughs> <laughs> it's basic conditions, and it's then the historical ad, uh, evidence for why these conditions are important. Yeah, and I think it's about people understanding where democracy comes from, getting comfortable with some definition of that. It's not just learning how does a bill become a law, but really the whole notion of where does this thing come from? To what degree is it precious? To what degree is it perfect? And to what degree does that mean for us as citizens going forward? Those are questions that vanished into the mist, and we're just trying to resuscitate them. Indeed. My guests today have been Brooke Manville and Josh Ober. Their book is The Civic Bargain, How Democracy Survives. Brooke, Josh, thank you so much for being part of Historically Thinking. Thank you, Al. Thanks so much, Al.
Great conversation. Thank you. And thanks so much to you as well for being a part of Historically Thinking. If you like the podcast, then share it with a friend or many friends. John Ruddat is our sound engineer. I'm Al Zambone, and I'll be back next week with more history to think about and to shape the way we think about the present. 